This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. In his essay, Walking, Thoreau wrote that two or three hours walking will carry me to as strange a country as I expect ever to see. We think we know the I-95 corridor or the Acela route, but by walking from Washington to New York City, one can experience a country that might seem strange, but in fact represents a deep and vital and familiar part of our history and a deep and vital part of who we are, just sitting there waiting for us to experience. Neil King took that walk and with his new book, American Ramble, takes us with him to visit sites of historical significance, rediscover terrains, exalt in the joy of human connection, and ultimately recalibrate our sense of time and history. My husband, Kevin, and I both became engrossed, invigorated, and enchanted from page one of American Ramble, A Walk of Memory and Renewal. And it is exciting and an honor to welcome Neil King Jr. to Just the Right Book to share the story of his journey. Neil, welcome. Well, it's my honor to be here, Roxanne. So, Neil, as an editor and uh, global economics journalist for the Wall Street Journal, you were, on the one hand, a vital ingredient of what you call the noxious chatter of Washington. And on the other, you quote Mary Oliver, attention is the beginning of devotion. So was your motivation more the getting away or the going towards a new state of being? Wow, that's a big question to start with. You know, the attention part of it, I walked out my door at the end of March, 2021. That was an extremely complex and fraught moment for us historically. A couple of months after the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, which is nine blocks from my house, after all the tumult and turmoil of 2020, COVID, the disputed election, George Floyd's death, the tearing down of statues, who are we and what are we as a nation? And there's many impulses behind the walk and the book, but really I think the core one was I wanted to walk out my door on Capitol Hill, nine blocks from the U.S. Capitol, take a left, heading towards New York, up through what I describe as a founding swath of the nation, and I just wanted to let it speak for itself. I I wanted to travel in the way that a lot of the travel writers, Alexis de Tocqueville, and so many hundreds, really, that came to the U.S. in the 1830s and 40s trying to figure this this bewildering place out. And I read so many of those accounts. And in the end, my my credo for myself was I'm going to walk out the door with knowledge, yes, but with no pre-assumptions, with as clear a mind as I can create for myself and just go see what story has told me along the way with really the commitment of paying attention and not being distracted, which, you know, that is a malady that we all suffer from. And I think it adds to 
the kind of um, divisiveness and bitterness that you see so much of in the country now. Yeah. So the, you know, you call the book American Ramble. And I, I was fascinated by that title because ramble can mean so many things. And one way to think of it is, as you just said, you might go out your door and start walking and will allow the walk to evolve. Or you could use precision planning and then ironically override any notion of a ramble or a serendipity. So how'd you balance those two things? I mean, you needed to know where you were going to stay or get food and you had a historical agenda also. So as you were planning the trip, how'd you like figure this out to leave space? Yeah. You know, I was originally going to leave at the end of March of 2020. And and as I say in the book, and as we all know, what I was going to do became illegal, basically. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It became illegal to take a walk. Yeah. I mean, I could not have done what I was setting out to do. So a couple of weeks before I faced the music and I said, okay, I'm not going to do it. I'll do it a year later. And so many things changed. And actually, for all the horrors and trauma of that year, it made the walk just infinitely richer and better. But it also gave me another year to plan and to think. And I, I put so much study into the book going, you know, I spent days just reading and understanding how George Washington made it to New York for his inauguration in 1789 and how the post postal service went and where the postal routes were and where the, you know, indigenous Native American trails were and all that kind of stuff. And then there was just the very precise planning, primarily about where I was going to stay. This was not a camping trip. I I did want to stay in some sort of shelters, which meant Airbnb houses and things like that, which is not easily done, despite the fact that this is a very dense part of the country. And I wanted to meet with people who were people of significance along the way. And so that was also prearranged historians, a mayor or two here and there, writers, people that I had found out about, heard about from friends and that kind of thing. There was a lot of magic that came up. You know, you've read the book. There was some extraordinarily magical things that happened to me along the way that weren't even remotely planned. But the planning part was the backbone to make sure that as, you know, as a journalist, I, I know, know how to do this kind of thing, that there was the kind of grist and substance that I wanted along the way. So basically every day of the walk, in a way, had kind of a theme in my mind. You know, and it's fascinating. I could go out now and do the same walk and write an entirely different book by just focusing mm. on different things. You know, they, they, there's such an infinitude of things to think about. Well, I loved the history part of it, particularly parts of history that we think we know, and then there were the parts that you talk about that we didn't know. But the other element of the journey was the serendipitous connection. So let's start. I had two favorites. I can't even say favorite. They feel like they're my kids, and I'm, <laughs> I like them all. But let's start with the parable of the two bridges and the empty water bottle, because I think they depict both parts of our culture. Yeah. You know, th that was such an amazing thing because it was only day two. I had, I had left my house. I'd gone to see Abe Lincoln in the memorial. I'd walked all the way up Rock Creek Park. I had spent the night in the house of Harold Ickes. It was one of the oldest or longest serving cabinet members of FDR's cabinet. 
And then I set out that next morning and I come to this bridge that was too narrow for me to go across as a pedestrian. I just didn't really want to risk it. There was no shoulder. And so I said, I look over and there's another way I can go and sort of skirt around it. And as I'm walking along, I meet this couple that comes not only out of nowhere, but kind of from another century and (laughs) they were themselves. You know, they weren't actually Mennonite, but they had a lot of Mennonite traditions about the way they were dressed and the various direct way and very plain, sincere way that they engaged with me. And I started to talk to them. I told them where I was going. They brightened at the idea or the mention that I was going to this town called Ephrata that they had actually spent years at living with this Mennonite family on a place (laughs) fantastically called Crooked Lane. And they told me about how they hadn't been in touch with the family. They weren't sure how they were doing. And I said, look, I'm going in that direction. I will look them up. I will tell them that you're well. I'll give them your good tidings. And that was the second morning of the walk. And I already, I was like, wow, I've become a messenger. I, be, I, mm-hmm. I felt that I had kind of walked into another world. where, and, and I immediately understood just on the second day, the parables that we're all familiar with in the Old Testament, the New Testament, almost all the holy books, they're based on people walking on roads and having individual mm-hmm. encounters with other people. And they have iconic kind of broad meaning, right? And and I'm like, wow, I've, I've just sort of experienced the parable. And the man said, you can get back to the road you want to be on by going this way. And the way he pointed me was on the old road that went across a very old bridge that was not now crossable by by cars, but only by pedestrians. And mm-hmm. the whole thing just took on this richness. So as that day, so I said, I've, I've lived a parable. And then as the day progressed, I, I ran out of water and I came into this very ritzy, pretty much brand new, you know, mansion sprawling, former farm turned into a subdivision area outside of Baltimore. And a young man in his 30s was coming down his drive. And I said, um, do you know where I can get some water? I asked it that way, kind of intentionally. And he went into this whole thing about describing how I could walk two miles back the other direction and blah, 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 to a, to a general store, probably a 7-Eleven, and I could find water there. And I just looked at him and I said, well, okay, yeah, I'm not going that way. Thank you. And I started to walk away and he said, oh, by the way, be careful. Mm. And I stopped. I said, be careful of what? I don't know. Because, you know, we have a lot of funny idioms in our language. And when we say be careful, we're actually saying, I see you as a threat, so watch out. And he said, you know, a lot of people in this neighborhood are gonna, might look at you a little strange. And I went on to tell him a long story about this writer that now is um, doing this walk basically, you know, around the world, American National Geographic writer. And when he crossed across the country of Georgia, Every night he was put up there or offered housing and food. And when I told him the story, he said, um, yeah, that's an interesting story. And I agree with you that we're a little screwed up as a country now. And it just, it sparked a lot of thoughts about what we've lost in terms of the traditions, the real traditions of hospitality, of letting people into your house, into your life, defeating the stranger, all that kind of thing. And, you know, humorously, I ended up getting water at Dunkin' Donuts an hour and a half down the road. and that is the modern American hospitality industry. We've turned it into an industry. Neil, the other thing that was striking to me about that scene with the couple and the two bridges was, and I don't mean to sound, you know, to make the sound cliched, but I was struck by the power of 
merely suggesting that you would give the family their good wishes and that we forget that even that carries a significance. It's simple. It feels like a throwaway, right? So simple, yet it is powerful. And, you know, I'm not, it's not a mystery book. So, you know, you do deliver the message and it created a circuitousness about your journey that I thought it just, it just stayed in my heart yeah. as a story. And the water bottle guy who didn't even, I mean, he didn't have to let you in the house. He could have gone to get water is also a piece of our country, and both those things coexist. Yeah, you know, my again, going back to my original ambition, it was really to give particular things, particular encounters, particular people their full due, and to really, mm-hmm. you know, say, yeah, this is just a one-off person. It's not a, this might not be statistically sound as representative of anything, but as an individual person that I encountered, that was a person of, of importance. And And not only particulars, but elemental in terms of their fundamental basicness, you know? Yeah. It was funny because just before I ran into the guy who didn't want to fill my water bottle, I'd gone into a nursery. I had started to feel like a scornful prophet or something because a woman said, excuse me, sir, may I help you? Because I was going towards their staff water, you know, container to fill my thing. And then she shooed me away in a very aggressive way. And I said, well, why did you ask if you could help me when you're not wanting to help me at all? And I'm kind of laughing to myself. I'm like, oh, my God, I've become like, you know, day two, and I'm already some scornful road prophet. Well, you quickly got rid of that. And I want to go to, I think my favorite story is you you are crossing the Conestoga. Conestoga, Conestoga yeah. Conestoga River and a road that begins with M. And you sort of, in slight distance, see a young girl with a baseball mitt in a long flowery dress, you know, kind of an incongruous sight. And that meeting at that school and meeting Neil Weaver and his students was just the most fabulous encounter. So share with us the elements of that. Yeah, that I was in Lancaster County, which is, you know, most of us know is the homeland of, you know, one of actually the great ongoing American experiments. I mean, I, when I thought about it, I think maybe only the Pueblo Indians of, you know, Arizona and New Mexico area would compare for longevity of being in one place and attempting one way of life. So, you know, that was a great place to have essentially a three-day meditation on a variety of different themes. But when I'm walking up, I was in a town called Farmersville. It was like a tiny little hamlet. And I look over and I see a a young woman, she's ninth grade, backing up in this long floral dress with a head bonnet on and a baseball glove. And she catches a hard hit softball. And I'm like, what is going on here? So I walk into the playground. They have two simultaneous softball games going on. And right when they end, these were very aggressive, serious softball games. This was not, you know, playing around softball. And the boys and girls were both equally aggressive and good at it. And, you know, right when it ended, they all came running over. And their their very open-hearted, open-minded teacher, Neil Weaver, you know, introduced himself. I introduced myself. He said, what are you, what are you, what's the mission of your walk? Why are you here? And I, 
I told them I gave a kind of a little sort of spontaneous, humorous lecture to the kids, and they were very responsive. And then one of them stepped forward after a few minutes, and she said, um, Mr. Weaver, what if we were to sing for Mr. King? Mm. And he said, do you have time? We'd like to sing you a couple of hymns. And I said, of course. And so they took me into the school, and they got on the risers, and with this just like, you know, briskness and, and beauty, they then sang two really quite extraordinary hymns, both of them about the afterlife. And the whole thing just really kind of overwhelmed me because it was such an expression of gratitude to me, the most sort of basic gratitude you could express, which is to sing for someone. And, um, you know, when the kids went up, I, I talked a little bit with Neil about the Mennonite, sort of what made Mennonites Mennonites. And he delivered a great line from St. Paul to the Romans, which is about um, the renewal of your mind and, you know, looking at the world skeptically and renewing your mind. and it, and the whole that whole encounter really kind of set a a sort of theme for the rest of the walk mm-hmm. of looking at the world in a skeptical way in terms of not conforming to it, which was which was part of the St. Paul line. And one of the great moments when I was leaving, I went down speaking of water and I was going to refill my water jug in their their drinking fountain. And I was halfway down the hall and Mr. Weaver went back into the classroom. And instead of you know, saying, well, that was a strange and interesting encounter or anything. He just immediately said, if you would turn to page 37, you remember mm. working on our reading and let's get back to that. And I was like, wow, these are, you know, I'm not saying that the Mennonites don't have their faults, but this is a people of great focus and, and orderliness. And that was just such a beauty. That whole encounter was really such a thing of beauty. And I've kept in touch with them, you know, and I hope to go up there on the early book tours and and do a talk with them. And, and I've actually remained friends and I went up and saw them around Christmas and they greet mm. me with great warmth and all of that. I'm glad to hear that you said how it sort of set the theme because as a reader, it set the theme of all that was possible. Yeah. And felt, you know, it felt inspiring to me that this was the beginning of running into and experiencing things like that. And I I, want to go shift a little bit now to the history Uh that you bring to the book. And I love the way you presented history is tied to a place, whether it was a place that was well-known or a place that was abandoned and unknown. So what I wanted to talk a little bit about here is so Valley Forge rests in our brain as a moment of both failure and fortitude during the Revolutionary War, yet it didn't really take on any physical significance for some time. And you also, at one point, went to find where Frederick Douglass had a quarrel, would be an understatement, with his enslaver, who I think whose name was Covey, yes. to see if there was some monument or permanence to understanding that. So as you think about this walk, what thoughts do you now have about what we do denote and preserve versus what we abandon and forget? And why does it matter? Yeah. So, you know, we're at a moment right now where 
this is a huge national debate. We see what's going on in Florida. We see all the hoopla about, you know, what, the, what some call critical race theory. We see all the fireworks surrounding the 1619 project and how important was slavery to our founding and all of these things. And, you know, the Frederick Douglass thing, which actually did not occur on the walk, but shortly before, and it really, I sort of portray it as something that that really set the foundation for how I was going to approach history because it was right near, I've discovered, a place where I'd spent a lot of the first year of COVID in the, on the eastern shore of Maryland. And I I had read his autobiographies. I was struck by how extraordinary. I mean, that <laughs> we know Frederick Douglass for a variety of uh, reasons, mm-hmm. but one heck of a writer. So I tracked down this field where he had spent his 16th year and had what David Blight in his great autobiography called, yeah. you know, the most important single chronicled encounter between a slave and his overseer. And when I found the field, it was just a field. There was just, you know, mm-hmm. crops of uh, cut down corn and no monument of any kind. And I wrote a long piece about that. And I kept going back there mainly, you know, it's so much of our history is just washed away. We forget about it. And particularly what I came to call the preeminence of place, that the places themselves have stories to tell us about our, our founding, about our beginning, particularly about the anonymous people that did so much of the work to create the country. And, and you know, we fight about these kind of big, emblematic, iconic things. And, you know, was Robert E. Lee a totally horrible person or partly good? And, you know, what about Thomas Jefferson? He owned slaves, but he also did so many other good things. And those are all fine debates. But it's a fickle thing what we remember at all and mm-hmm. what we make kind of central to our national story. And that was what I really wanted to explore some with the Valley Forge chapter because Valley Forge only became Valley Forge in our national memory a hundred years after those events of that winter, and which is fascinating because Gettysburg was memorialized and acknowledged within months of that battle. And we were in a different cycle of memory at that time. We were saying, okay, this battle matters. We will start to put up monuments. You know, a president will give a, what became one of the, the most famous address in American history at that place that was still a burial ground, essentially. And the whole, it took time for Valley Forge to matter. And it became a matter of kind of Victorian resilience and, and all those things that really resonated to the country starting in the 1870s. And I was fascinated by that aspect of it. You know, if you don't, if you decide it doesn't matter at all, things just wash away entirely. And there's lots of that that's happened too. So that, the aspect of memory and kind of decay and what puts, you know, monuments up to. And as you know, having read the book several times, I go and kind of think about this in cemeteries, which are, of course, the most potent, you know, attempt to remember like individual people and 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 cemeteries don't hold up very well unless they're really maintained. So, you know, I, I was not going out to try to make some sweeping conclusion about what yeah. the essence of the American experiment, but really to poke at many aspects of it. And in a lot of ways, urge people to go out and do this themselves in a way, because it's there for all of us to go walk and think about and re-examine. Well, and it does remind you of, you know, history is in the hands of the historian. And what I think we see happening and What I feel like you did in the book is there are a gazillion stories we haven't heard that are critical 
to the sort of building blocks of our history. And we've, just like you meet a person, and it's always interesting to me the first thing someone wants to tell you about themselves, because that's their narrative. That's, you know, that's the building they've built for who they are. And we've done that with our history. And I think you unpack that in the book by going to these places that were significant and, you know, the library that you go to and the guy's got all that stuff there that sort, what was his name? Amos Hoover. Yeah, yeah. Muddy Creek Farm Library, yeah. I went there for the Martyr's Mirror, which I, I love the whole concept of the Martyr's Mirror. Sticking to Valley Forge for a second. So the non-historians among us have a vague notion, maybe a more than vague notion, that the French were critical to our ability to become successful against the British. But I think until I was reading the section on Valley Forge, two things were striking to me, one of which I never knew and the other I had forgotten. Lafayette was 20 years old. Old yeah. at Valley. He was 20. You have kids. You have two daughters, right? Yeah. I have a son. When he was 20, I mean, I don't think he could have fought his way out of a paper bag. I mean, I shouldn't say that if Edward's listening, but he was capable of more than that. So one is Lafayette being 20, but the other was Baron von Steuben, who talk about a name that doesn't come up that much, but he at that time at Valley Forge, as you describe it, wrote the Army's training manual and created an army for Washington that probably was a major contributor to their next step. So what was your reaction as you were writing that part? You were probably smarter than I was and knew more than I knew coming into it. You know, no, I wasn't really. And, you know, Part of my methodology in wanting to write the book was I really wanted to find depth in every paragraph where I could find depth, particularly looking in a quick kind of piercing way at some of these events, but to do it quickly, potently, and keep moving. And and a lot of it was based on, okay, this is going to be read by people like you or me, people who are, you know, consider themselves pretty well-educated and pretty well-knowledgeable and inveterate book readers. And the reality is most of us really know profoundly little about so many things. And yeah. <laughs> only been in the last few years that I've really come to fully understand the parameters of the War of Independence, a lot of its pivotal moments, how it came to be. The, and, and you could devote an entire life to studying that and never fully understand the, even those events. The, and, you know, the Valley Forge thing was so fascinating because there were essentially two things that happened. We honor ourselves as Americans that we fought the British and we won our independence. Yeah. Right there at Valley Forge, the two things happened that really won our independence. One, this eccentric German, Baron von Steuben, who had basically been thrown out of Germany, shows up and knows how to organize the military, which we didn't, teaches this fledgling, you know, Continental Army how to actually behave right and not drink water out of their own latrines, essentially. And that was important. But the most important thing was what Lafayette and the French did in general, which was to bring the French into the war. So by the time we came out of that winter, the British gave up Philadelphia because they realized that they had to reconnoiter and start to mobilize forces to protect the sugar interests in the Caribbean, which were more important than the colonies. And so some of it is about the way we aggrandize our own past and our own importance 
in kind of winning our own freedom when in many, many ways it was actually won for us by others. We did the fighting, but other things happened that really made that turn out the way it did. And, you know, we can't help but make you think about two things, one very contemporary and one more general. When there's conversations about the role of the United States in humanitarian interests, in military interests, and then obviously now with the war in the Ukraine, what I was struck by, but here were two people, Lafayette convinced Louis XVI, who himself was only 22. I know. Uh, I was like, okay, we got a 20-year-old and a 22-year-old who, and, and a gay baron from Germany, tilting the war of what, by a reasonable measure, would be considered one of the greatest democracies ever created. That feels like a big rock standing on a toothpick. <laughs> Yeah, I love that whole chapter. And I had, I had invited a historian who had written just about the aftermath of Valley Forge to come meet me there. And she gave me a great walking tour. And I absolutely loved it had this moment where I met her at the very colonial rock built, very formidable Valley Forge post office. And she gets out of her car and she says, uh, welcome to a post office that exists only for the, you know, the postal stamp, basically. And um, it felt like a great kind of beginning of a discussion on why things are the way they are and why certain things are, are put up to matter. So speaking about our country, the other thing that I had no idea about so beginning, in, I, I did know this part, beginning in the 1820s, there were a series of known and unknown wanderers that came to our country, two of the best known being Charles Dickens and Alexis de Tocqueville. So one question is going to be a simple question about whether and how you felt connected to them and how the America that they discovered relates to today. But the shocking thing to me was that one of their interests in coming to the United States, or what was then called America, I guess, was the Eastern State Penitentiary, <laughs> that we were, sort of ironically, a model for how we were making prisoner criminals penitent yeah. Yeah. for their crimes. So I know I gave you a lot of questions at once, and I can unravel them again, but share your thoughts with us about that array of of topics. Well, I mean, it was fascinating. And again, it's, you know, certain scholars certainly know this, but Alexis de Tocqueville wrote a very famous book called Democracy in America. And yet he came to America not to study its democracy, but to study its penal system. And mm. at that time, Sing Sing existed. A number of prisons that are still in existence existed even then in 1834. And he came and traveled and visited them and was very systematic about uh, that. He was writing this for the king, essentially, because they were trying to consider some changes within their own system. And it was a fascinating, you know, when I, as a walker and a person who's writing, you come to a place like Philadelphia, it's like, geez, how am I going to deal with this gargantuan city with all of its complexity? I'm not doing a history of Philadelphia. I was just so fascinated by the 
the fact that the two of those men, Dickens and de Tocqueville, had both visited um, one the de Tocqueville like nine years before Dickens. And de Tocqueville was largely positive about what that prison said about solitary confinement and about conversion of prisoners. And Dickens spent days there himself and was much more critical about this experiment. And that to me was fascinating just because of their up-close desire to examine things right in front of them. And again, it goes back to some of the inspiration of the walk that if you read Dickens's book, which was then published, or, you know, of course, de Tocqueville wrote voluminous amounts on his travels around the U.S., everything that they encountered said something to them about the character of Mm -hmm. this place. So Dickens would write about these unruly Americans that were, you know, where you meet a 12-year-old that's spitting his chaw juice into a spittoon. And, you know, there was a huge discussion at that time, 1830s, 1840s, about could this unruly place made of all these ethnic identities who didn't really even speak all the same language or just the same way, and they, you know, were riven by slavery, and could this place work, you know? Could it hold together? Could it live up to its promise? Could it live up to its ideals? And I think all of those questions are extremely salient right now. You know, where are we going? How much are we living up to our original aspirations? And that question, which you might remember, I kind of posed to the Mennonite kids at the softball field. I was was like, you know, I look at what you're doing and there's a lot of things that tell me that you might in some ways be doing it the right way. Do you think you're doing it the right way? And I, I posed that question a lot throughout the whole walk. Who is really doing it the right way? And um, how far have we strayed from what might have been our original course in some ways? You know, you mentioned Thoreau at the beginning, who I adore as a writer and as a such a fantastically quirky American figure. And, you know, you think about him and the transcendentalists, and you just they are absolutely pivotal, Emerson, Thoreau, and others, to the founding of our culture, the beginning of uh, a flowering of a real American writing tradition. But you have to ask yourself, okay, great, but is there any strand of what they put forward that we still really abide by? You know, mm-hmm. we have become such an extraordinarily aggressive consumer society that I just kind of wonder where we've left some of these these original thoughts of what some of our greatest thinkers really hoped we would be. And that was something I, I ruminated on a lot as I went. And Neil, you can't help but read your book or be a thinking person today and not be constantly struggling with the notion. Because on the one hand, where I like to live is that we are a continuing experiment hoping to live up to our ideals and hold that notion with the incompatible notion that we are reaching a point of inflection and the beginning of a demise. And, you know, like which power will win out. And when I read a book like yours and you're giving air and space to people, contemporary people and historical people who are contributing to the more positive, if imperfect, Mm -hmm. but more positive notion of what we're capable of. And and to me, it raises the question, if we let a minority shape how we think of ourselves and how we operate. Yeah. 
You know, I, I subtitled the book A Walk of Memory and Renewal. And we've talked some about the memory, which is in large part sort of a national memory in history. The renewal part was in a lot of ways more personal. And it has to do really with what I think is one way out of this jam that we're in, which I think increasingly we're falling for these sort of big abstract generalities that we fight over and we feud over sitting in our, behind our laptop or in our computer or our television screens. And there is a, a world of, again, going back to the particulars, of very particular stories that's out there, out your door. And the kind of encounters that that involve running into people in their own sort of common ground and being on their front yard or in their barn. That is a, a tradition that we're essentially losing because of our speed, our distraction, our cars, our hyper-personalization of everything we entertain ourselves with. And we are losing that kind of common space where, yeah, a person might hold some beliefs that you find a little abhorrent, but they have other things about them that you find charming. And that kind of is the way that we lived once. And, you know, you there were various moments when I described having kind of, you know, rapturous feelings brought yeah. on a variety of things. And that was one of the most interesting aspects of the walk. And I'm not arguing that, you know, the country is going to be solved of all of its woes if we all go on long walks through parts of the country and look at it closely and allow ourselves to feel rapturous about simplicity and about sunshine or an unexpected snowstorm or whatever. But I do think there is a, a renewal path that is available to all of us by, again, going back to throw by simplifying, by focusing, and by paying attention. There's a great, I don't know if you follow the late Irish mystic and poet John O'Donohue. I um, do. Yeah, who I absolutely adore. And um actually he has a poem that I always send to someone knocked about after someone's experienced the death of someone because I think it's so oh, I know exquisite. That one. Yes. Well, he has this great line that he said in an interview that I listened to where he said, the difference between walking out your door really on any given day into what you look at as just a dead geographical landscape and walking out your door with what he called an open heart and a watchful reverence is the night and day difference. And I love that idea of the discrepancy between a dead geographical location and, and an open-hearted watchful. Mm -hmm. And that was really very much the spirit that I wanted, which was to be open-hearted, open-minded, and have a, this kind of watchful reverence of the things that I saw. And when I got to the Susquehanna, I spent like an hour there saying, man, this is the Susquehanna. This is a real river of great consequence. This is once a dividing line between the where the frontier began. And then there are just so many aspects of those things that we fly over on bridges and we don't give them their due. They don't give them their respect. And, and Neil, you talk about the one, one you describe a bolt of beauty, like the one you experienced sitting at the bar in Reistertown. And apropos of this conversation, how do you think we create the space for that? I mean, the world's not going to change on a dime we're not going to drop our phones. You know, people are going to do the like 24-hour, you know, digital free. But how did this walk or your own experience over the last four or five years provide sort of a practical way of how we become present even for 
five minutes. Yeah. You know, I set out on this walk. I was 61 years old. I, you know, therefore had experienced 61 springs. And I walked out right when the forsythia were just starting to come out. And I walked up what I called the blooming line, where as I walked, the trees were kind of sort of keeping pace with their blooming. And I, that just in its own right was so revelatory to me because I'd never really just watched a spring unfold and just really paid attention to which trees came first and how they would vary by what sort of sunshine they got or where you were on a hill. And, you know, that opened a space inside of me, even now that I mean, I'm not saying I'm living some saintly life. I also walk around looking at my phone and doing all kinds of stupid things all the time now. But it created a place that I can kind of like step into and, mm-hmm. and, and it's there as, as a thing, just because it's 26 day walk that I kind of carved out. It's a, it's a frame of mind of a kind of a, a spiritual place that exists. And I think anyone that has that kind of practice, whether it be a meditation practice or other things where they kind of create that space, even when they're in the thick of all this stuff that distracts us and overwhelms us. And, and that's still a place that you can access. and. There's no doubt that this simple kind of goofy walk between these two places really did alter my my view of the country and of what you can seek as a person that really, I mean, I, I kind of laugh where I, you know, I have a chapter about rapture on the Bayonne Bridge and I'm sure anybody mm-hmm. in the New York area is going to be like, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, like, seriously, you're going to have a rapture on the Bay, And yet that was a kind of religious experience for me where I, I try to do it justice in the book. You know, it's funny, we don't really have a very good vocabulary for describing mm-hmm. joy. We have a great vocabulary, I think, for describing grief and sadness and depression. And and um, and I think we're all, a lot of us kind of intimidated a little bit about describing for one another moments of extraordinary happiness, particularly when they happen to you alone because they're kind of odd, you know? And of course, I talk about Proust and his, um, you know, magical moment. With the mad line. <laughs> yeah, with the mad line. But what was great about these moments of rapture that I had, and I had quite a few of them, and they were really momentous and amazing, was you could never quite determine what had brought it about. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it was just that I had, that the day after day after day of attentiveness just changes your spirit and makes you more open to those kinds of waves of emotion. And... um that I found so fascinating. And again, it kind of goes, it was a lot of ways opened up my ability to understand things that I had read about in the, you know, I'm not a huge Bible reader, but, you know, various things that are described in the, in the Bible or in other places, you're like, okay, now I think I understand how that, that comes about. Mm-hmm. We'll come back to this in closing, but I was struck by your crossing of the Delaware in three ways. One is I'm just that much older than you and not old enough necessarily to be your mother, but old enough to be older and say, I can't believe you got in that goddamn kayak without a life jacket. (laughs) (laughs) We We can talk about that. But that that was to me a perfect intersection of all the elements of the book in this way, the serendipity of who you ran into on the canal 
going to where you were going to put in the water. Two is the actual story of Washington crossing the Delaware. And third, your own experience in crossing the Delaware. So share with us that whole of a piece. Yeah, I mean, you know, as I had thought about, okay, I'm going to walk to New York, so what are the various ways I could go? And I considered so many different routes. And there was, you know, certain of these places, Valley Forge, some aspect of the Mason-Dixon line, the where and how you're going to cross the Delaware, just they have a kind of magnetic force. And it felt a bit unavoidable that I would do the crossing of the Delaware where um, George Washington famously had on Christmas Day, 1776. And so the morning I'm walking down that way, there's a guy walking up the Delaware Canal path that I was coming down and just immediately stopped his phone conversation because he thought that I was this person that he had heard about that was walking to New York. And he walks with me and he immediately starts to narrate. This is the kind of thing that I'm sure certain readers are going to be like, come on, you created this person. But, you know, he was um, just telling me about what Washington's Crossing was really all about because he had grown up there and he had seen all the reenactments they had done, have done basically every Christmas for decades. And it was the great Harold who just sort of shows up to tell that story. And then, you know, we went across it. A friend had brought some kayaks down. It was not, again, in terms of the momentousness of the crossing, you know, it's not a huge, wide, raging river. It's actually a fairly shallow river at that point. Obviously, it was choked with various icebergs on it the night that Washington went across. But there was, you know, again, so much of the the pondering of the place. And that also was a place that they didn't really care about until decades and decades after that event. And going to see the Durham boats, which are obviously these huge boats that he went across and not the the painting that we're all familiar with of him in a very small kind of rowboat with what with what like 75 pound oars? Yeah, they're was huge. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were they're they were used for bringing cargo up and down the Delaware. And they're very, very sturdy boats that could carry rum and wheat and every other kind of thing. And they're there to be viewed now. They're replicas of what kind of boats they use. But but it was that was fascinating. So, Neil, I want to close with one last question, and then I'm going to read a quote from the book. Did the walk accomplish what you hoped? I mean, we haven't talked about the encounter, as you say, you had with cancer, um, and you describe it as being in the clearing, not clear. But did the walk accomplish what you hoped it would? Um, You know, it did, absolutely. And one of the things that I, I talk a lot about in the book in various glancing ways is just time itself and how do we measure time and, you know, how do any of us with our fleeting little lives set ourselves up against, you know, geological time or, 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 you know, outer space time and all of these things. And, um, you know, this seam that I sort of stepped into elongated time in a lot of ways. And, you know, on just this one walk, 26 days to New York, I made at least a dozen friends who I remain in contact with. I mean, mm-hmm. how many of us at any age make a dozen friends in three and a half weeks, right? I mean, yeah. it was, yeah. there was a richness about it because I'd kind of you know, I, I would joke with people that I'd gone through the back of the wardrobe and the kind of lion, the witch, and the wardrobe sort of fashion and entered into this, my own personal Narnia of sorts of this world that's out there that has a degree of richness that if you bring intentional meaning with you, it pays you back just so much more. And 
And so to that extent, yes, it absolutely achieved it. You know, I talk about at the end, like, did I come away with some firm conviction about, you know, where we're going as a country? And do I think we're, you know, at heart a a good and blessed place or more uh, the other way around? And I didn't really, I have thoughts on that, but I was never trying to convince anyone in that way. And a lot of it was, look, this is, there's a world out there. Go out and experience it like this yourself. It was more kind of blazing a path than trying to just tell every aspect of what it is that one can find if they go out and do it. Yeah. As I think I said before we started recording, my husband and I are both obsessed uh, with this book. Kevin actually read it before I read it. And, you know, you, you've gained friends. I'm going to lose friends because I never shut up about <laughs> the book. And for our listeners, we've covered you know, just a tiny little thumbnail. And part of the appeal of the book is the glory of the whole of it. And just sort of surrendering along with you uh, the experience. So I want to thank you for that. I can't wait to put the book in people's hands. You know, it's part of the joy of being a bookseller is you get to find books and sort of, you know, cry from the roof of your building about everybody reading it. And American Ramble is uh, one of those books. So I'd, I'd like to close with two short paragraphs from your book that I just loved. Your one solid conclusion was we should approach our own certitudes with caution. The more you look, the more you think and study, the more you open other doors, and the more you understand how little you know. St. Augustine asked about the ways of God, and the first, second, and third way he mentioned were humility, humility, humility. And as you close the book, you say, if you go out your front door with an eye for all that baffles, amazes, enchants, and keep it at it day after day, giving into the landscape and letting the rhythm of your steps guide you, it's astonishing what can ensue. So, Neil King, thank you so much for writing American Ramble. Thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you so much, Roxanne. I'm quite moved by your um, your appreciation of it. So I really appreciate that. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. Can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. 
Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.